everyone. Welcome to another edition of Flail Forward. Today we're having a special guest, uh, Julian, who's working on Tales from the Great Isles. Welcome, Julian. Thanks so much. Of course. Thanks for coming on. Um, so on the Flail Forward side, today I have Catrice. Yay. And Kavoir. Hello. You're supposed to say yay, too. As monotone as possible. <laughs> yay. <laughs> Perfect. I'm Mark. I'll be moderating for today. So this is going to be the first episode of what hopefully is a small series um, looking at indie game designers. So people who have potentially not even published their first game, uh, working on a design, working through the troubles, just like a lot of us here at Flail Forward are doing. Um, so we'll get through kind of asking Julian a little bit about your game. But first, um, do you want to tell us a bit about who you are? Sure. Um, so I'm a tabletop game designer from Toronto. Uh, my name's Julian, obviously. Um, yeah, my background is really uh, not gamey, but I did music composition and illustration and creative writing. And nice. then I kind of, uh, when I met my partner almost a decade ago, um, he studied video game design and I got into video game programming and graphics. And cool. then I discovered through his friends all these tabletop RPGs. Um, and then I played my first ones. And actually, my first game ever was Changeling the Lost. And uh, yeah, I got to being a DM for doing D&D. And then I just wanted to make my own games in this kind of category. And I've been stuck ever since. So, Wow, that's awesome. So you've been working on RPGs for a little while then. I guess a while, yeah. Like I, I, I started the process by writing adventures and working on material for Dungeons and Dragons. Um, right. So my main, uh, my main gig is I run a website. It's called Games and Stuff by Julian dot com uh, with an E. And uh, yeah, I sell character sheets and adventures and D and D kind of peripherals. Um, and then I, yeah, I've, I've made a few games that have kind of. Some are finished, some haven't been. Uh, I did a Game Chef or two competition in the last like four or five years. Nice. So yeah, been playing uh, around. I've I've seen some of your graphic design. It's so beautiful. The, oh, thank the you. Character sheets that you have, even for the game, I, I got the chance to play uh, Tales from the Great Isles at uh, Prototio, um, and some of your your graphic design for those character sheets were beautiful too. So you've uh, you've got an eye for it. Um, it's definitely I mean, worth you. checking out. Yeah, it's very kind of you. I enjoy. Of I enjoy that, like, I enjoy design that makes things more accessible. And I think a lot about, like, a big theme in my life through every discipline I've been in is I really like teaching. And I'm always kind of like, when I design, thinking about how will people learn this game and play this game right. and teach others to play this game. So all my graphic design stuff kind of lends itself to making that accessible and very clear. And that's like a big passion in my designs always. Awesome. Um, that already gives us kind of a hint on the first questions answer because yeah. rob's not here so we have to ask the question for him with a sock puppet and i actually have a sock nearby so i'm just gonna <laughs> <laughs> so the normal question that would be asked is what were you trying to fix about dnd Oh, that's such a great question. I've actually like it's funny too because I've seen on Twitter. Um, I don't know, you know, the they have the old Forge forums, and um, there was all these essays about like fantasy heartbreakers and how like mm -hmm. a shame it was to see everyone try and clone D and D. But I kind of love that tradition. Like I, it gets so many people into tabletop design to just clone D and D. Oh, absolutely. Um, so what I was trying to fix about D and D, which is very apt, because like I. Like I'm a streaming dungeon master. I've been a dungeon master for like six years now since like fourth edition was out and or uh, was in circulation. So I I think there was something where it seemed like this game was trying to tell stories. And that seemed like the biggest thing people wanted from D&D &D when they asked me to play it. Um, it's the biggest thing I wanted. It's like you can tell your own fantasy story. And that seemed so cool. But then there were like zero rules that helped you tell a story in any way. Um, so I don't know. The stories I read, and I have a, a huge love of science fiction and fantasy. And uh, my favorite authors, uh, one of them is like Ursula Le Guin. And she's a very mm -hmm. character-focused writer, which are many mm -hmm. of the stuff I like. And I was like, there's no character development in D&D. There's like, you get more stats. But I was playing with this group, and I love my players, but 
there was no incentive for them to be a different character in game one and in game 20. Like these were characters who had done all this stuff and were still like very basic tropes because nothing encouraged them or told them they could or should change or develop or face their problems. Um, so then I made a game and the original kind of idea for Great Isles was what if instead of picking a class that kind of labeled you as a fighter or a wizard or something, you picked a class that was a specific story. So like you wanted to tell this story, you pick this class. You want to be a runaway, you pick the runaway. You want to be, you know, uh, a disgraced leader or knight or something, you pick the disgraced class. And yeah, that that was kind of where that started. So there's an Antigo Montoya class? You killed my father, prepare to die? I mean, it, it gets into that a little bit. Like it's, that's definitely, the thing I've discovered when I've been doing this too, is that you can definitely like make any character with these classes. And they, I find when I'm doing them, there's like, I keep thinking of more and more big like characters from TVs and movies and books that could apply to these different archetypes I have. And uh, yeah, it's been really fun. So like, yeah, you can play that character. You can play most TV tropes and, and stuff like that in this game. Ooh. You said most, though. Does that mean there's a gap that you're aware of? Is there anything you can't do? <laughs> if only I was aware of the gaps in my work, what a better designer I would be. <laughs> um, if there is a gap, I don't know what it is yet, but I'm sure through more playtesting, I'll find it. <laughs> One can only hope. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I think what I found that I really enjoyed about that structure was that it was so easy to latch on to a character concept because... Like you said, I watch TV shows, then I fall in love with the characters. And now when I'm presented with what kind of story I want to experience, I can look at these archetypes and say, okay, I know what um, Shepard Book character is like in, in Firefly. So now I can latch on to what sort of story I get to feel when taking this character class. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's a really intuitive way of being able to say, this is the experience that I'm looking for, and this is the one I want to play up. Um, as opposed to these are the stats that I have going into approaching the game, um, or these are the, the roles that I'm going to be more or less successful at. It's really about the narrative arc, which is a, a great way of getting people into the game. Like you said, making it accessible. They might not know the mechanics. They might have never played a game before, but they can resonate with characters and, and stories that they've heard. So it's a yeah. clever design. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Uh, so maybe we can get a bit into like, what would be your description for what Tales from the Great Isles is about? Is it, mm. is there an overarching theme that goes from each game? Is there something that unites all of it? Yeah, it's funny. I, because I like, I like doing pitches and like elevator pitches and Proto TO is such a great uh, convention. And like, anytime you go to a playtesting convention or a playtesting situation where you need to sell your game, I think that's so useful. Um, but it kind of has been revamped a bit. I think, I mean, my, my thing I say is it's always about stories. It's always about playing a character that's trying to overcome their past and playing to find out what their destiny is and how they take charge of it. Um, so there's a very big like past affecting present, affecting future thing in this game that I think I strive for. Um, because a lot of games don't worry about future. They kind of just let it occur naturally. But in, my, in this game, you you kind of do a bit of future planning um, and you don't predict exactly what will happen, but you predict big things your characters will come against and kind of like face in their lives. And you play to find out whether that, whether they succeed in overcoming those problems or whether those problems kind of crush them down. And eventually you have the mind of retiring a character as part of gameplay. So it's not just you, there's no way to play a character forever in this game, really. That's not the intent. Um, so yeah, I guess that's my, I got a little long-winded, but... No, no, that's perfect. <laughs> that's actually short-winded by our standards. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're used to the two-hour-long podcast. This is, this is flying by. <laughs> well, Katrice does off that average. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> but I do have a question on that, which is, how do you define, like, a story? Is it like, oh, this is the... Uh, stereotypical like hero's journey is it these are their values and they've been compromised and they have to figure it out or is it more like a story of redemption or how are you actually setting the stories up as the kinds of things that they would uh, be 
what kind of a class would it be? Yeah, I um, I think back in the day, it started with me kind of liking these caricatures from TV and video games and stuff. Um, like, I remember when I was uh, thinking about Super Mario RPG, which is like one of my favorite SNES games, um, there's a part in it where Princess Peach runs away from the castle and joins your party to go kick ass. And uh, it's, sorry, I hope I can say that on the stream. Oh, sorry yeah. about that. You can believe yes. that. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was a really cool moment. So one of my classes was like a runaway. And I knew I liked stories about runaways, like runaway princesses or something like that, or people who, you know, left that kind of life of privilege. So that became one. But they all started to just form around these tropes. And before I knew it, I think the big thing is that they all have a particular trauma they're dealing with and i didn't really set out to make this a game about trauma but it happened and i have eight archetypes four of them are a little more mundane and they deal with real life kind of things an example is like i have a champion they're uh, a, a knight that or a protector or a guardian of some kind that failed in their duty and lost respect and lost a reputation and is trying to figure out what their new life is. Uh, Jamie Lannister of Game of Thrones is like a big example of that kind of archetype. And then I have four archetypes that are supernatural or kind of magical in nature. Um, and an example of one of those that's really popular with playtesters is the Beast, which is someone who is either like cursed or has a demon in them or has something inside that takes over like the hulk is a kind of good example or wolverine from x-men would be a good beast where they've been like changed some way and have to adapt to whatever is within them and their own rage and anger um so yeah they came out of these different experiences and each archetype is like you have a specific thing in your past that happened. You get to define it. It can be fantasy, Western, sci-fi setting, whatever. But you get to define what this trauma looked like. And then you get to define what you're going to do to get to move on with it or, or deal with it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I think that's what the, the buy-in is. And it works really nicely with one of your, your central mechanics. So can you tell me more about the destiny map? How that factors mm. into the story that you get to tell about your character? This was a really cool concept I had uh, that took a long time to lay out how I wanted to do it. And uh, it wasn't until I got into, uh, this is like classic queer interest, but tarot reading this year. Um, and I got my first tarot deck that I was like, oh, this is like such a great tool for this game possibly. So um, the idea with the Destiny map is that you would create a character arc. So like originally I kind of wanted to ensure you create like a beginning, middle and end of your story somehow. Mm-hmm. And that you would have this kind of wonderful structure and then your character would retire when you hit the end of it. And it's not plotted out like you have to play four games with this character and they're done. It's just like you're always in the game aiming towards certain moments. And then when you hit those moments, it's like just like it's a, I guess like a checkpoint. And once you hit your third checkpoint, your character retires. Um, so the way it works now is that you reveal tarot cards, you do a three card tarot reading, and I have a list of, um, I'm going to pull it up here, uh, but I have a list of just basically events that are associated with the cards. So if you pull strength, the first event might be your greatest challenge you've had in your life. And then if you pull, um, justice it's about the unspoken price of your past actions coming to bear down and it asks whether you're going to like forgive yourself for them or find Mm -hmm. forgiveness and then your third one might be uh something like the devil which is like your earthly attachments threaten to overtake you and will you be able to let them go so you play through those three moments it could take three games it could take 10 it could take 15 and you look with the gm for opportunities to say I'm going to make this my destiny moment. And like, can we do this scene as this moment? It makes you a bit of the center of attention for that little scene or that game even. And then, yeah, you kind of decide as yourself, like, how do you change from that? How does that affect your character? From How does what happened affect your character? Um, and yeah. You'd mentioned like you're working on the concept of basically you have the future of the character set in mind. Now we Mm -hmm. actually see how that is. So I was going to ask originally, like, how set in stone are these? Like, do you actually set, like, you will encounter this situation? Or is it more specific, like, do you have the ability to just say, this 
specific situation will happen, but you don't know the context that's going to lead up to it. And the context may dramatically change the nature of it, sort of Babylon 5 style prediction of the future. That second option, definitely. Um, my A good example in our second playtest uh, that we did uh, the last day of Prototeo, we had someone in their first destiny moment was the lovers. And we just played a couple scenes, but they wanted to try we wanted to try making one of the scenes, even though it was very early in the campaign, because it was only one game, one of these destiny moments. So the lovers is someone close to you that you care about is like, like they disappear and will you try to get them back? Um, and we were playing a Cthulhu style pirate game um, and we were on the ship and someone's character was kind of a little bit obsessed with their the visions they were having and of, of going to this really haunted like awful place to to discover ancient Cthulhu like relics, um, and they were obsessed with it. And they had their like love interest was on the ship as their navigator. And there was a moment where there like was threats happening around them, like a sea creature attacked the ship. And when I kind of wanted to threaten something and put that character in a position where they had to make a tough choice, I was like, I'm gonna if you're cool with it, let's make this scene your first destiny moment. The lovers like they're the person that's threatened and you have to ch pick between like keeping the ship going or saving their life. That's how they disappear. And like, will you fight to get them back? And they ended up ditching them because they were so focused and driven on their goal. But then afterwards had to like process the grief that they just like basically let their lover die. Wow. And it was like really intense. So that was kind of how we did it. We talked about it and we said, Hey, do you want to make this it? We didn't know the context. And part of the game is like, as a GM especially, note down what your players kind of want to happen, but also look at everything they don't specify and see how you can surprise them. Sounds Very like cool. job for necromancy for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Which could lead to another very difficult moment in their life. Okay, I have a pair of extremely boring questions. Please. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. Uh, first one, have you read Royal Blood and or And if you have, have you managed to run it? I have not. Royal Blood? Yes, uh, it's uh, another tarot-based thing that uh, uses Major Arcana in an interesting way. And but Oh, how, cool. How does it do it? designed entirely to be one-shots. Uh, it's its own unique thing. Um, yeah, I was just curious if you had read it. Uh, second question, do you have uh, 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 rules for adapting for using uh, Thoth versus Rider or or does it has an assumed deck that you're using, or where where does it where is it on the scale? Well, I think I, like tarot decks are so unique, and I think with each one they like have some similarities. But some tarot decks can really take cards in a new direction. So I have like a general list of like suggestions for these moments. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. My specific question is: you have. A a list that is rider uh, in is your list of examples. Yeah. Do you have a conversion for do you have a conversion for the ones that are quite different in Thoth or is it I don't have any conversion right now. I kind of have it just based on rider and general concepts. Um but I think as opposed to like making specific I know there are some mainstream decks that I could do a few versions of, but um I don't know. I'm also comfortable having it ruled to be like, you know, if your tarot deck suggests something different, or if you and your player, when you flip that card, kind of have a, a feeling about it or or an idea that, that strikes you both really strongly, that's kind of like not really lining up with what I wrote. Like, it's very much intended to be do it like a tarot reading and even like sometimes when you read tarot, even the strict definition of the card, it seems to not fit as much as something else in the imagery or something. Okay, so yeah, yeah, it's very flexible. No, I think that makes sense because it's more intended, I think, as a guide of what you want to interpret as opposed to being essential for the uh, play of the game. Like if you had a different deck um, of other semantic meaning, I think you could use that just as well, as long as it encompassed a lot of the storytelling narrative elements that you wanted to feature in your game. It could be like a very different genre, right? Yeah, exactly. And since this right now, I'm like, I'm pretty setting neutral on it, which I, I usually am not a big fan of setting neutral stuff, but I'm, I'm trying it out. Um, mm. Yeah, some of this might work with like, some of it might work as is, but some of it might 
need to be a little changed or just might invite a really cool change that everyone at the table really jives on. Makes sense. Technically speaking, then, you're not really attached to it specifically being tarot or specifically the uh, Rider Waite version. So you could just have basically use like uh, card sleeves for Magic the Gathering or something and just yeah. write stuff in on a sheet of paper and shove it into like the little card slots mm-hmm. and basically make your own deck and it would still work. I even have kind of like a rules for using percentile die to randomize a, a destiny map if you don't have a tarot deck. Oh, nice. um, because so to use the deck a little more fully, so the major arcana are used for this destiny map. Um, and then the like minor arcana, not the court cards, but just the one to 10 cards are used for the resolution system. But that can be subbed in. If you just have a playing card deck, you can do the resolution system with the card deck. And you can do the destiny map, which is only on character creation with like a randomizer of some kind. Um, yeah. Yeah, I did actually notice that uh, D100 scale, and it's like, well, you've got the 21 cards, and you have the D100 goes in batches of four, so it only goes up to 84. What happens if you get 85? I guess just a re-roll. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like I tried to make it as high as possible. But like math it out, and like unfortunately, I was left with a remainder of like fifteen or something. So I was just like, "Oh, okay." Twenty one's a really hard, or twenty two, I guess, is a very difficult number uh, to use a percentile die to measure. But <laughs> it could also be choose your own. Um, I haven't fully fleshed out the non tarot applications of this. Okay, good enough. I assume that like the one to four of each also correlates to the elements because you had actually mentioned that there's some elemental spark stuff here there is there used to be like i used to look at so <laughs> i was going to be I, I use elements game a bit as your main stats um so you have a score in fire water earth and wind and air and there's a uh aether like magic stat as well but the Arcana do have elements that they're assigned to them. And I was thinking, oh, I could use those in character creation. But I ran into this problem where no one agrees on which element is belongs to which card <laughs> at all. And there are like, I, I the differences in resources I found on that were just monumental. And I was yeah. just blown away. Like one book said one thing, one website said another, another book said completely different. Like they're not balanced either. Like one resource had like eight out of the 22 cards were fire and like, you know, four of each were in each other element. I was like, what? Right. It just it made no sense. Yeah. I, I ran into the same problem with just the normal suits of cards on normal playing card deck because my game also has something where you derive semantic meaning from the suits and whether spades or clubs or diamonds meant different aspects of yeah all over the place so uh, i think it's sort of just a you have to find what works best for you what imagery you like to present in the game because i think there's still an association between a specific suit like what what pentacles means might be something that's unique to the experience that i think you want to sell so it's just about what that means for you and how you want to interpret it uh, or how you want your players to interpret it as well i'm also just a big fan of simplicity and minimalism in design like i i tend to shy away because i feel like i'm i feel like mechanics are not my strongest suit i don't know probably just self-criticism but whatever i tend to shy towards like less information is is sometimes Mm -hmm. better so the tarot the destiny map is a very new thing in this game i kind of wanted to leave the elements out of it at the end of the day because i was like this is extra stuff this is a hat on a hat there's already so much symbolism in the major arcana i don't need to go further um and then the elements on the Minor arcana come up because you use these elements. So, like, you'll use earth to stand your ground and endure things, or you'll use fire to do something very angrily or passionately. Um, and then you reveal these cards or play cards and use their one to 10 as your result. If your card suit lines up with your element, because like wands are traditionally fire, pentacles traditionally earth, you get a little bonus in the game. So, that's, that's where I use the elements of the tarot in like the actual mechanics is in the resolution system. Yeah, seeing, seeing the elements, like just the way it's listed at the moment, like using the D100, I would almost say like 
since they're always in packs of four and you have your four main elements, then you have your remainder. But almost makes sense oh. if you had, like, if you roll a one, then, okay, you get this uh, tarot card, but it counts as earth. And then two is air, three is fire, four is water. And it just goes through in cycles like that. If you ended up with, like, your 85 plus, then maybe just say, okay, you roll again, but the roll, whatever you get, counts as aether. Mm, that's actually like, well, I'm stealing that, so thank you. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting thing I hadn't thought of that I see what you're saying now. The one to four is matching the number of elements. There is room to to have something like that in there for the destiny map as well, if you're rolling particularly. And maybe I can just like emulate that if you use a card reading by rolling a d4 each time and matching elements or something like that, you know? so. So there's something there's some way to work that in that I'm going to think about. So uh, thanks for the tip. <laughs> yeah, of course, that's what we figured we'd be here for is just to kind of talk about what issues you're having in the game as well, what kind of current things you you feel like you're working on, or whatever your, your design challenges that you're facing. I know you had just run through some of the playtests at Proto.to. So was there feedback that you got that you're currently working on, uh, like tweaking the game in certain ways? Or yeah, I think just like decide because i when i run them it's hard when you're making tabletop rpgs and testing them as the dm like i think that's as the game master you're you're innately in this position where you can kind of change things on the fly and like you're using rules that you don't have written down because it's your style of game mastering and stuff like that too write it down as you go yeah right i i ran into this problem of being too easy on my first uh playthrough of it my first playtest session so I up the the difficulty of some of the tasks, and I think that's somewhere I could just work on a little more is how to create pacing and challenge and how much challenge should be in this game, how hard should things be. Um, we got a really good test in the second run of, since I'm using these cards, I was kind of thinking there's so many things that card-based mechanics that you can do without dice. Um, mm -hmm. So one of them is that if you give in to the vices of your character, or if you cause issues for other characters without their consent, um, you draw cards, or yeah, you draw cards that you can use later and store. So you can always flip the top of the deck, but you can have a hand as well of up to like, say five cards. Um, and then your character might have skills that we were kind of testing out too of, you know, if you share an intimate moment with someone, you can swap cards or like give a person your card if they see you at your worst. Or, you know, if you get someone else passionate about what you're passionate in, you can take a card from them. Like all these kind of mechanics where now you can trade your hand around and use that hand. Um, I think one thing I need to think about too is what is the use other than thinning out the deck of drawing low cards and like cards that will not be very helpful for you. Um, how do I make that feel less bad? How do I make it feel like you're not just being a bit screwed over by the deck. Right. Um, so I, I've been thinking about whether I can just make some things in the game require any card or a card of a certain suit, regardless of their number. Um, that's where I'm playing around right now. But it was really fun. Cool. It was a, I, I think the feedback around that was pretty solid. Uh, people want more challenge. And uh, it's just the nature of Proto-TO as well. But I have to start working on and testing long campaign stuff. Like, how does it actually look after six games? You know, that's right. what I... And like... Well, how do you reintroduce a new character when one retires? All this kind of stuff that deals with long-form play is what I need to work on as well. Mm -hmm. I think that's a big challenge when you are still trying to narrow out even some of the, the early play tests, because mm -hmm. if you're still working on some of the, the structural mechanics of a single play session, it's hard to think of, like, okay, is this game solid enough to take it to six, seven sessions? Um, so really just like narrowing down exactly what the mechanics are usually I think is a, a good way to know that your your one play session is solid now let's take a look at what would happen in the next session what needs to change if i were to reuse all these characters um, mm -hmm. so just finding a kind of group is even difficult for a lot of people to have that community of people that say yeah of course i'd want to try this again and um, have the time to play around with these long-term mechanics not not an easy step to take for sure yeah it makes me wonder about like there's there's just so i, I kind of bemoan sometimes little organized information there is in the tabletop 
RPG designer community. Like we don't have these standards that the video game design community or even the board game design community now has for playtesting and stuff. And like, mm-hmm. I think we do need, even though a lot of indie games are coming out as one shots and short run games. Um, I think like we, we should like look at tools for how do you test long form games without making a group of people play like every week for three months. Like I, I've been thinking about how could I, either create characters that have the feeling of being in the game for a while, or like, is there a way I could cram like five games worth of stuff into like a five hour play session and just, we like gloss over a lot and just work on the long-term mechanics only and just do a few scenes each game. And then like play a final one as like session six or something. I don't know. I've just been thinking and like kind of spitballing, Mm. how do we test this stuff easier and better? Um, Because there has to be a better way than just playing six full games of it. Over the course of, I can't get D and D players to play six full games in the course of like three months. So yeah. I don't know how the <laughs> crap I'm supposed to get people to play this game that's not even finished. Um, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And I, I think you're right that there should be sort of some guidelines that I don't think exist right now for how you would how you would play test these long term mechanics. Definitely, it's it's still a very young industry compared to video games, or I guess underdeveloped is what I sh- should say. Because um, RPGs have been around for a long time, but it's the amount of uh, resources uh, available to people to to figure out their own system is is a bit tricky. So yeah, I feel like most of our design docs are Twitter threads right now, and that's really exactly. not easy to uh, manage. Right? Yeah. No. Absolutely. <laughs> or even just uh, some of the communities on Reddit and uh, people who play online on Roll Twenty. It's it's still hard to find the community base um a lot of people spread out over different medium there's not really yeah. a single place where everyone goes to find their their team so i've seen the drive for people because i i just i love it when i got into this community too i was like where is this community and the answer was on google plus and i was like well that's a joke but no it right. was there was such a strong google plus community of designers and i was yeah. like well this is doomed and then inevitably it shut down and we're all kind of spiraling out where to go exactly. um I've tried to do stuff on Reddit before too. And like, I just, I, I've, I've gotten into very like a left or left kind of side of Twitter that's in RPG community. Like there's a lot of queer mm-hmm. developers and stuff that I connect with. That's really awesome. Um, because it's a really like fostering, it fosters a lot of new gamers and new designers. Whereas like when I was on Reddit, my experience was like, I saw a lot of the same stuff all the time and i saw a very big like hostility towards people who weren't as experienced and not doing the same stuff like it's it's an interesting platform because it probably has the most people in a in a communal space that are actually talking about this stuff Mm -hmm. um i don't know i think i i'm really excited about discords opening up i'm on like four tabletop design discords and they're all like quite busy and that's that's a new thing i'm learning to do because i'm 31 and discord is a challenge (laughs) i I feel like i shouldn't be old but discord makes me feel so old so i'm learning (laughs) it it happens to everyone i think we're all getting there too so yeah yeah there are a lot of discords but i think on the reddit one i think you're kind of right but well if you look at like the rpg design reddit for example that one i found it's very similar to as you were saying uh people expecting everybody to be doing the same thing but the problem is the same thing is almost everybody is asking about you know the the probability yeah probability curve of their mechanic (laughs) and it's like that's probably the least important part of your game it reddit tends to feel like that to me it's like when you get really i don't want to like reddit has a lot of people that are doing such good work but i feel like it fosters a lot of amateur voices to like focus on these wrong and like i've been there because again like i've i've done a lot of things where i'm learning new skills like whether it's been music or graphic design or writing so like i have been that over enthusiastic person worried about probability curves in every (laughs) discipline i've been in for like quite a while so i totally sympathize but yeah i feel like that's the that's the advice i get on reddit and then i'll go to twitter and people will be like how does this game make you feel (laughs) it's like will i cry if i play it why not (laughs) and i'm like okay it's very different uh different communities absolutely and i think both have their place um yeah 
I and love them dearly both. Exactly, exactly. They are definitely aiming for mostly different target audiences, yeah. to be honest. That's actually kind of cool, too, though, that we're at a state where, like, tabletop RPGs have multiple audiences and multiple veins. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. funny, I think, like, people get to D&D and it's like this crossroads in the middle. And you can go like, oh, I love the story stuff. I want to make story games. And this is a generalization. I don't really use this term strictly or anything. But also you can be like, I want to make emotionally intense games that no one can play that make you cry when you read them. And you (laughs) go that route. And then there's like, oh, I want to make like D&D, but with 500 million more rules. And people are there for that. So you go that route. And like, I, yeah, it's just hilarious. And it's, it's cool for me because even some of the games I'm looking at that are being released. Like I've been following Lancer RPG, which is one of those just all crunch. The entire yeah. game is just mechanics and how you tie everything together. And I'll get this level up and this one, and then they'll work together. And anyway, and then other games like um, you had shared a uh, a, a list of esoteric games. Oh, uh, did you read recently. that? Yeah, that one got me. Oh my god! And it was basically I remember the description of one of them was um, you. It takes three people. You sit at a table with somebody else. One person is uh, that covers their eyes, and then the third person plays music. And the first, the blind person dances. The other person sitting at the table has to mimic their dances, and then yeah. the third person is just responsible for keeping them out of like hitting each other or hitting other stuff, or safe from the other players because yeah. it's like groups of three possibly. Yeah, yeah. there was one yeah. where you just describe each other's faces in like brutal detail until yeah. you run out of words or someone's crying and i'm like oh my god right like, like it was beautiful to read but i'm like this is i need a lot of trust <laughs> exactly exactly and it's so so interesting that this is the the breadth that we're seeing now because like you yeah. said a lot of i don't know my experience with rpgs coming into it was D esque derivatives like that's how i started was with oh this is this other game called pathfinder here's this other game called shadowrun and they had very similar feels in terms of how the game plays. But now that we're seeing all these really interesting indie games come out with such a variety of, of emotions or mechanics, and it's, it's really exciting to be a part of the community right now. Well, I, I take a lot of this from my music history and, and composition knowledge that I did because I kind of got thrown into music and in the university and was listening to a lot of very modern stuff. Um, mm. And I think people's big question is like, I mean, music has, a lot of classical music has stayed very strict to different guidelines and stuff and been very like traditional, even when it is experimental. But when people do like this music as art and like music as not even enjoyment or for the purposes we normally assign to music, when they just do it to challenge things and they do it to break the mold, people are always like, well, what's the point of that? And I think Uh, art like games as art are important because that influences the traditional stuff that pulls almost like kind of the moon pulling tides it has very subtle effects but these Mm. big ambitious vague things that games as art are doing they trickle down and they influence it takes decades but that's what happens with music every like big movement in classical music is is predated by a smaller weirder movement before it that influenced it in that direction um so i'm always excited to see games as art because i think we have a lot of these traditional games and the more games as art out there even if they're unplayable even if they're super alien to us and difficult to parse they they will have their effect and and they'll help out in the long term i I think it's a lot quicker than it has been though nowadays yes to take centuries and then we got like printing presses and oh it started only taking a few decades now we have the internet it usually takes a few months to a few years for things to trickle down as you said like the whole powered by the apocalypse kind of thing just Mm. basically changed everything in just a few years and before that it was like the white wolf games like everything was dnd-esque before that and then white wolf and it was like what the hell just happened yeah it's very quick nowadays and i i kind of love that like on Twitter, I'll see people talking about an idea. In two days, there'll be a game jam. In four more days, there'll be 20 games submitted to it. And it's like, oh, this one concept everyone was thinking about now has like this huge, and like this has been a week. And I feel like I'm always missing out. But uh, yeah, I don't know if you noticed, but the you end up with like plus ones or like basically minus ones to plus threes in your stats because this game was an apocalypse world hack as well at one point. Right. So that's where even I started. 
it's it's interesting that you draw the comparison between music because I know that in music and also in other um, I guess trends like fashion, um, there's sort of a cyclical nature to it where there's sort of a a push in one way like oh now uh, everyone wants dark wood cabinets and then next like 50 years later it's back Open in trend. concept houses and then exactly yeah, people are putting the walls back in once they realize oh crap those were there for a reason exactly and it's it's this this kind of recurring cycle but i don't think the game design field has quite that sort of cyclical nature and i wonder if that's just because of how to how pervasive the technology is and that people can latch on to these trends and they're all open like no one's not a, a wave i guess it's more just everyone can latch on to the games they want to play um hmm. but I don't, I don't know if you have the same experience are you seeing these these waves and trends or is it sort of this explosion of all over the place anyone can find the games they're looking for oh i think it has to do with um like you said, these cycles happen, but a big part of those cycles is death. Um, things mm -hmm. die out, mm -hmm. uh, and in, in like music history and art history, like movements are born and they're but but sometimes they just die out because, you know, you didn't have a hundred Discord servers to choose from to talk about this stuff with. You didn't have right. like a tight knit community here or there. So I think for better or for worse, I see uh, a lack of. There's like a lack of pruning and editing that happens that's very natural, this very like mm -hmm. evolutionary kind of thing that happens in a lot of disciplines where naturally the best ideas start floating to the top and the worst ideas start just fading away. And I mean, I think half of it is just that we have the the ways and possibilities to keep things alive for much longer than they usually would stay. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it too is uh, just like how tabletop games are like film or or other games they're they're a product of capitalism kind of like they are inherently really tied to capitalism in a way that other things are i don't know i mean i know the art world is too but uh yeah like you have to be able to make money you have to sell some games usually or you're doing your side gig you're putting these up on itch.io you want to make a few bucks like there's something about this capitalism cycle too that just keeps things alive a lot longer because if a company like Hasbro wants to make tons of money, they'll keep D and D alive a lot longer than it's popular because they have the money to convince us it's popular. Like they have the money and the intent and the will to be like to just keep D and D at the center for mm -hmm. way longer than it would be if that drive wasn't there. I think we would have gotten over D and D a while ago, but I mean, mm -hmm. how can we? We're going to be it's going to be marketed to us for a long time. Right. Um, so yeah, I think yeah, big things don't topple as much. Small things that maybe me off click or stick stick around a little longer, and that has benefits that has drawbacks. It's just different. That makes sense. Very know. interesting. And I, it's um, curious uh, that um, those monolithic companies like um, Hasbro and uh, haven't picked up, I guess, a lot of other titles to compete with D and D. It's very much like their their baby child, and maybe I'm maybe I'm mistaken, but I I don't see them pushing the same sort of uh, diversity in RPGs that we're seeing in the rest. They'd of the be game. competing against themselves, right? Exactly. Yeah, they want the monopoly, and like I don't know. I talk to my partner a lot who was like magic card politics a lot too, mm -hmm. and like he's followed the change when they got like like there's been changes at Wizards for both D and D and Magic the Gathering when they got bought by Hasbro. And mm -hmm. they're usually negative, but I I have this feeling from like the pieces I put together that like even though D and D is wildly successful, it's still niche and it's still really hard to market and it's still not doing as well as they could. Like mm. it starts to feel like the video game industry, where like even companies that are making tons of money always feel like they're about to do massive layoffs anytime soon. And it's like I, I get that tension from the D and D and Wizards kind of community well, as they well. I don't know. Did in D and D like yeah. There was that's, like, that's what, very true. the height of 3.5, they were pumping out like, what, a dozen or more games every year, like major books. And then now it's like less than a dozen total. <laughs> yeah, I think they're they're really like looking at the marketing and the, the financial structure. Like, I think we're seeing this decline in publications because they're realizing it's more productive and beneficial. And I mean, it's more, it's, it's 
better for your your bottom line if you're publishing a little less and not putting so much money into these like D&D books are by publishing standards a very big job they are right. a lot like they combine like the density of a textbook and the expense with like the art of an art book and then like have to sell it for under a hundred dollars it is a lot of investment i think they're finding more success in just trying to let those breathe a little more and sell more copies as opposed to something new every every month because four even yeah. still had so many releases exactly and that makes sense too especially if they anticipate another version down the line that yeah they, they want to extend this one be able to be creative with new books new releases and then when they've pumped out all they can then they'll switch over to another edition so and like there's there's benefits too like don't get me wrong i do like some about it because and don't quote me on this but i believe at this point at like the what are we four or five year mark at dnd i think it's five for fifth right. edition um if you wanted every class available you need to own like six books for fourth edition yeah right. because they kept pumping them out and right now if you want every subclass two and really like they're available online but like you could get two books and have every subclass available to you right now and every spell that's been released that's like an extra for the most part um aside from like unearth arcana stuff and that's really nice actually like that's better for the consumer than for yep. splat books that were out every two months exactly and that makes sense um in terms of speaking of this like uh commercial aspect do you know where you'd like to take your game? Like, would you want Tales from the Great Isles to to be um, sort of picked up by a publisher? Are you looking for someone that would be interested, or is this something that you'd like to self-publish, keep on the Every indie scale? Every single copy gold-plated. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I definitely like to self-publish. My ideas on like a small for this particular game are kind of um, to self-publish this probably through Kickstarter. Um, I, I know they're in a heated mess right now, but the union's still mm -hmm. arguing that people should keep using them so that they mm -hmm. don't get punished. Um, yep. But I was just looking at like that would probably be the best route for doing a physical and a like I I'm a small independent developer. I don't need this on shelves. Um, I don't mind selling it myself. And through just running my own website for the past year and a half, I've learned that like it's very doable. Um, and then ultimately, like I'd love it. This led to like. I'd love to publish other people's games too. Like I really like the publishing aspect of it because I feel like it's this really cool opportunity to lift people up. And mm -hmm. I would totally love if after publishing a few of my games, I can reach out to like people, especially like in marginalized communities. Like I work in the queer community pretty closely and just like have other people who don't have the opportunity I do to dedicate so much time to this, to let them get their games out there and give them the step up and raise some funds for them. That would be awesome for me as like a long-term job, I guess. Yeah. So, that's that's fantastic. And I think that's always, it's going to be a growing industry and something that's going to be in demand a lot is uh, being able to publish games from all these different communities that are getting more of a platform now to, to yeah. be able to express their, their own creative design is excellent. I've also got to look at my illustration skills because I think like this is something that could be sold with like a custom tarot deck too that would mm. do really well with it. That's so. awesome. Yeah, I might be doing that in the future. All right. Well, that'd be excellent for Kickstarter. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. Goals. Yeah. That's awesome. You had mentioned at like the very start that one of the things that you noticed about D&D 4th edition in particular was that it had no rules for making stories. And then later on, you were also mentioning like, you know, story games. And strangely enough, what I've noticed is that a lot of story games specifically go out of their way to avoid getting into the way of role-playing. Like, they consider rules constrict and constrain, so a lot of their... Uh, the strange thing is story games actually very often don't have any story rules. So hmm. what's your thought on that? Oh my god, I'm so glad you asked. I could talk about this topic all day. But I'll suffice it to say that first... With Dungeons & Dragons, I think what I more mean... This, might, this is the worst egregious thing about 5th edition to me, and it's just like, 
I hate it. But I, I still play, and this is, I play fifth edition. I appreciate what it is. I have friends who want me to run it. I do it all the time. But I think fifth edition gives you these personality traits and the inspiration mechanic, which is the most clearly last minute decision that game has, <laughs> because like, it's the one thing in the game that ties into no other rule at all. It was right. window dressing at the last minute. And like, no one can convince me otherwise. But um, this whole mechanic of inspiration in your personality is lackluster and forgotten by so many dms that i feel like it's this slap in the face of DD being like look we're more story focused gotcha and uh, <laughs> i really but anyways i i as far as story games having rules about story and rules not i think it's like two directions you can go and i like you said i don't always see a lot of games go heavy on story as in like like my game actually asks you to plan out a character arc and that is like the biggest pull I think my game has because it's just like that thing I thought of that I'm like, no one's doing this on a, on a, as a main thing for their game too much. And I think players have this and DMs think, well, if I know anything about the future, isn't that ruining the story? And I'm coming up with a way to like, you can know something about the future, but you're still playing to be surprised by it. And you're still playing to discover what it is about it. And that can also be rewarding, but this year, I've gotten into OSR, Old School Revival D&D a bit more, and I've also, I, I run a stream for D&D, um, and on that stream, I've been using a collection of really hard mode, intricate mechanical rules that make the game really tough, and even though I added nothing story related to that game, I just added mechanical challenge and made it a very hard mode D&D game, the difficulty and mechanics of like fighting and surviving made the story really great and it's been like my best story of a DD game and my best narrative and my best characters i've ever played with like we all agree that on a compared to a lot of our games we've played this is like we've we've found something amazing and i i, I don't know i went with a very there's story rules in my game but i've seen games that go like we're just going to stick to mechanical challenge and not worry about the story at all and that challenge can breed a story really well so mm. i don't know i think it's two ways to accomplish it and and i've chosen this one but i'm also at the same time playing with ideas right now for another game that is very the opposite like creating story by being very hands-off and just letting that challenge create it i'm not really that surprised that when you added a challenge you got more story out of it because at the core of any story there's generally something that you had to you know deal with like there has to be something to fight against like you know yeah. the whole mm -hmm. man versus man man versus nature those kinds of concepts right introducing more adversity into the yeah into the so, story. but a good story the villain it doesn't necessarily have to be a personified villain but the thing that you're facing as a challenge the bigger a challenge it is compared to yourself the more interesting the story generally becomes right i'm actually absolutely seeing that in our stream and it's been really rewarding i used to think um like my gm style used to be very like pull punches because i felt like if the characters like i didn't want a character to die really because like mm -hmm. that's an end of a story and i was worried and i was overprotective so like i wouldn't challenge my characters and then like i kind of tried to but realized that fifth edition has this like one thing it probably does actually well is that it looks challenging but it's really hard to die in fifth edition without like additional rules like it's really it looks way harder than it is um so when i actually yeah stepped up and said okay i'm not going to play nice i'm going to rule in the open your characters could die and that's a re reality of the situation and that made yeah like because they knew they could die, things were a little more serious. The stakes were higher. They cared more. And uh, they played their characters better because of that, too. I don't know. It was really, it was a really interesting discovery. And I shouldn't have been surprised by it. But like, it changed my whole outlook on how I run games and has been a really rewarding kind of revelation. Wow. I have to posit something because it's related to like my game. But that something that I've learned specifically while doing this is that it's not the risk of death i've discovered it's the risk of consequences for your actions mm. so you can make things very challenging and make it so that 
oh, it's near impossible to die, but it's really easy for you to fuck things up and be stuck with negative consequences for what you did. And if you do that, then you still get the benefits of a very lethal system, but you don't have the downside of, oh, well, the story is over because your character's dead. I really love that. Um, I think like non-lethal games are totally out there and like yeah like I part of what bugs me about D&D is like this colonialist nature of going into the land of other creatures and just slaying them for experience points but like yeah I've been looking at how do you like a violent centered RPG experience that's still very tense and I, I agree like that consequence is coming to bear you can have things worse than death you can have things be just as as troublesome and terrifying to the characters you know mm -hmm. so I love that insight thank you yeah the, the center I found for that insight was actually, as you were saying, it was like that there are worse things you can have than death. And it's it's very true in RPGs. Like where I'd heard it originally was actually from uh, the Spoonie project where he'd flat out said, it's like, if you want to piss off your players and make it personal, it's not killing their characters, it's taking stuff away from them. Like, if you take their items, if you take their levels... They hate that you, shit. <laughs> if you give them an NPC, like, here's a butler for you. It's your personal butler, and you give them, like, a personality and everything, then somebody kidnaps their butler. <laughs> like, that's yep. about the worst thing you can do. <laughs> it reminds me of, like, uh, Dungeon World, where the fighter gets, like, their named weapon that they, like, deck out with different additives and stuff and they like create this custom signature weapon they love and it's like if i've ever seen something that's just like a red flag for the dm to threaten that and risk that all the time and let oh, it absolutely. swing out of their reach like it's just like a golden opportunity i love it yeah and the more the more personality the more um connections that i think you can play with gives the dm so much room to pull strings um mm. Yeah, I, I love that aspect, and I think that's part of the tools for creating GMs or, or creating talented GMs. I think is to make sure that they know where to find these strings, and if you have stuff built into the game like those uh, fighter weapons or uh, relationships between certain people, I think that's kind of like here is here is the big sign of please like mess with this thing because these are the things that the characters latch onto. They're part of their identity, like mess with this and you'll have a great story that's also the thing that it's it's the thing that the player wants you not to mess with the most that tends to be the thing that they're most attached to and therefore the thing that you need to mess with them yeah <laughs> yeah exactly it's that classic apocalypse world principle of like put everything under crosshairs right yep Exactly. Not just the players' lives, but like put everything, NPCs, items, favorite things, favorite yep. towns, their hometown, their family, That's whatever right. it is. No, absolutely. Very compelling stories come. Yeah. I found one of the biggest ones. Sorry to derail no, no, go ahead. a little bit, but one of the biggest ones I found is for stories that really end up to sticking with people, it's usually when you force them to go against their their nature so if you have like the paladin character and he's like oh i'm like a staunch defender of the faith and everything and then it turns out that their faith is really heavily corrupt and it's like now you have to decide between like do you follow your beliefs or the church because they're fundamentally opposed to each other. The very nature of what you use to define who you are as an individual is broken. Now what do you do? I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think the stories that Tales from the Great Isles allows us to tell are also very strong with that because you've, you've created these sort of things, these latching on points for people to be able to, to mess with a little bit. Like even mm -hmm. the, who your, your champion example was, like you've let someone down before. <clears throat> and that's something that can come back and be the the individual that once again is up for the champion to to defend or right their wrong or uh, something like that. And I think those kinds of prompts um, and the open ended nature of some of the questions that you ask in the in the destiny map, I think those allow for so many interesting places to carve out the identity of the characters and have them change over time. I think it's like a beautiful way of doing it. Um, and I can't wait to see the next versions and iterations of the game. So 
Oh, I'm excited too. <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to agree. Like the description that you gave of your example, where it was like, oh, they had to choose between their mission or letting their uh, their loved one, the navigator, you know, die. And it's like mm-hmm. it's not really a fun conversation to have. It's like, do you really want to give? Like you have to give up something, and it's like. Yep. Those are those are nasty choices. Mm-hmm. But the only thing I would have suggested at all from your example is I probably would have put it off till at least the second or third session. So they Oh had, yeah, for sure. So they <laughs> had the more attention. Right. Yeah. Like make it even more difficult. <laughs> yeah, I think the best intent is like for my game is to make the like destiny moments happen like one every three or four games is kind of my idea right now. So like you build up to them for several sessions and yeah, it kind of creates that care. Right. That makes sense. It increases the the emotional attachment and intensity. Yeah, the impact cool. when it happens. Exactly. So might actually suggest writing that down directly, not necessarily as a rule, but a guideline for your, your GMs. Exactly. Yeah, when I start to look into like full GM rules, for sure. And I also, because I feel like there's going to be a magic number, and like I'll probably find it when I actually get to test this long form a little bit more too, which is mm-hmm. exciting. I bet you're probably accurate on it being about three to four sessions. I think it's um my partner suggested too you could run like a really concise game of this and you know have one moment happen every session and like play a three session version of this maybe and that might be a possibility with it too if you wanted an especially chaotic intense experience and didn't have like you know 15 weeks to play so I'm looking at that as an option too but I think primarily I'm going to design around the long form and like that, that, that build yeah. I think the long form makes more sense. Yeah. Right. And then let the GM modulate it as they feel they want the story to go or as the players and the table feel like they are ready for it to to progress. So I think that makes sense. Yeah. It's the analog of like when you play a and d game and you level up once every session, which is like chaotic and nuts, but very fun sometimes. Exactly. It can be, I find. Uh, yeah, it's for certain people, not me in particular. <laughs> yeah. If if you go too quick, especially on like really big plot events, like every session is like the final episode of the season, it it kind of ends up feeling not really chaotic. It just winds up being like, well, everything's happening full peak all the time. There's it's exhausting, nothing. yeah. There's never any downtime or low point to compare it to. So it just kind of, you grow accustomed to it. It normalizes itself out. You can't have pulse pounding action all the time because you become dead to it. Yeah, I really do uh, appreciate that sentiment too. It's like, um, it's another thing that my streaming D&D game has had. We, We do, I'm very intentional with giving them periods of rest within this very difficult setting and of like making sure the pacing comes down sometimes. And like those moments where we just role play being around a campfire and like, we know we're like, I'll tell them you're safe for the night. Don't worry. And like, let them talk as a group. And like, those are some of like the cool moments that build this backstory and this piece and this companionship that then get tested again and ramp up. But like without those breaks, it would be, I think it would lose something. So Mm -hmm. I totally, I totally agree with that. Just like, Telling a good story always needs the the fluctuation of highs and lows, and that's what makes it dynamic and interesting and keeps it fresh for everyone. So I, on the scale of wrapping up, are there other um, points that you wanted to bring up, other things you wanted to shout out? Yeah, support me. I'm awesome. Um, <laughs> if you're looking for where I am, I want you to know everything with my name in it is spelled with an E, and I don't care. Learn my name. It's great. Um, mm-hmm. So if you want, I'm really active on Twitter mainly, which is Games at games by Julian. Um, and then I have a website called gamesandstuffbyjulian.com. It is a great website. It has links to a newsletter where I'll update you about this game and any other games I'm working on. It has... Uh, 
all my awesome character sheets and spell books for Dungeons and Dragons. If you play fifth edition, especially if you play with new players, all of my stuff is designed to be super helpful to people who don't know the game very well. Um, so if you like my work and want to support me financially, you can buy my stuff. I'm on Patreon. Uh, if you search games and stuff by Julian and yeah, just uh, give me a follow in and let me know what you think. Yeah. We'll post some of those links in the description of the podcast as well. Sweet. So. And in the near future, I, I'd say like Twitter or newsletter is probably best for you to see it, but I'm planning to make the first draft of this somewhat available. So if you want to take a look and read it yourself um, in the next coming weeks, just stay tuned. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Julian. Thank you for coming on and chatting with us. And Thanks uh, for having me. Of course. And uh, on behalf of... Uh, Everyone from Flail Forward to our, our solo listener, uh, have a good night, because it is always night where you are listening. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, or not, we're not picky, leave us a review on iTunes or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, and, uh, and Pornhub. Because why not? Gotta go where your audience is, right? Good night, everyone.